Part two of Nothing Never Happens in our interview with Professor Bettina Love, the author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. In part two, Bettina Love is going to take us through what it means to freedom dream in education. Yeah. This conversation and the one that what we were talking about before with mattering, um, and the difficulty of stopping capitalism makes me think about your discussion in your book of the impossible demand. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if you could elaborate on the impossible demand as a way of telling black and brown children, showing black and brown children, you matter. Right. Um, the impossible demand. I think. I think. I. I am all too familiar here with this idea. That, well, like you know, you can critique capitalism, but what are you going to do about it? Like reform right. it. You need to reform the system as it is, mm -hmm. um, and otherwise you are you're making the problem worse. Um, and your book stands so staunchly against that kind of incremental reformist position mm -hmm. and finds resistance that is radical within the, the capitalist school system that we have. So yeah, will you talk about how, sort of how do you come to this language of impossible demand and mm -hmm. what does it have to do with love? Yeah, so you know, the language really comes out of the work of Rick Ayers who talks about demanding the impossible. And I really thought that was a wonderful way to say it because that's exactly what Robin D.G. Kelly's work of freedom dreaming is about, and to freedom dream with each other. And freedom dreams are not whimsical dreams. Freedom dreams are dreams that mean you have looked at the situation, you have studied the situation, you understand the situation, and now you, in solidarity with folks, are ready to fight. Mm -hmm. And ready not to ask for what you think they will give you, but to demand what they say is impossible. So don't ask for $15 an hour, ask for 75 and see where you land. And that is a radical type of love and hope, not yeah. only for, not only for my, my brothers and sisters, but for this country, right? James Baldwin said, you know, I love this country. I love this country more than any, any other country. And for that reason, I will perpetually criticize her. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a radical love you have to have to change um, and to have hope and to have endless hope and faith. And, you know, that's where the ideas of love and radicalness and abolishment come for me. You know, I wrote the book because I think oftentimes we, we talk about, oh, abolish ICE, abolish the police, but we don't talk about what abolitionists did to abolish something. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about how brilliant and how smart and how thoughtful and how caring and how loving they were and how strategic they were. They weren't just like, oh, let's, let's blow the, no, they, they, they thought this stuff out very clearly. And so we're, we're gonna talk about what it means to be an abolitionist. And then we, I wanted to tell their stories and I wanted to you know, talk about you know, what it means to work within the system and also tear the system down at the exact same time. Hmm. And while you're critiquing the system and working in the system, you are trying to tear it down 
and building something that they said is can't be done. So what would it mean to for teachers to work in this school system? Yes, because our babies need us, but in the same time, be demanding and fighting for and planning to tear this thing down at the exact same time and build something that they say is impossible. That's built on love and joy and equity. So that, you know, that was the real vision. And that's what abolitionists have always done from, you know, Harriet Tubman to Frederick Douglass to Angela Davis to Alicia Garza. You know, that's what, you know, that's what abolitionists have done. They've critiqued, they've challenged, and then they've tried to build something better at the exact same time and do it simultaneously. So it doesn't leave our babies or the most vulnerable uh, without any structure, but that structure is much better and full of justice than the one that they were that they were endured. Yeah. Well, are are there any models of this? Any examples that you see where this is happening? I mean, I've I've visited and we did a podcast early on with Freedom University. Yeah. Um, which is a whole different kind of educational system for the underdocumented. But are you seeing uh, even glimmers of this? And, and if so, where? Yeah. I mean, if you if you start to look at, let's say, what happened in Oregon last year when Oregon teachers went on strike and they didn't go on strike for more money, they went on strike for smaller classrooms. Yeah. If you're looking at what the Parkland kids are doing. Yep. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it is happening and it is slow, but it is happening. If you look at Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter gave a whole generation language to have a conversation about what it means to be black in this country and what it means to think about the ways in which black folks can matter. Um, so I think it's happened. If you look at Arizona, mm-hmm. and I talk about this in the book, teachers in Arizona, along with families and alumni, and community got together and fought for Chicano and La Raza studies to be on the books and they won. Oh, that's right, yeah. They won. The Supreme Court of Arizona said not only should they have those classes, but it's actually racist for them not to. That was the Supreme Court said that of Arizona. Well, yeah. so, you know, we have to look at these examples that may not make the nightly news we have to look at these examples that, you know, people are going to say, oh, well, what about this? What about that? But hundreds of people got together and they made change. Mm-hmm. And it's possible. And so we, we have to. If you look at Florida, what happened last election season in Florida? 1.4 million so-called felons are now back on the voters roll because of grassroots organizations like Dream Defenders. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's happening and it, it's small and it's nimble but it's how ha- it's, it's it's happening if you look at chicago and organizations on the ground getting prosecutors out that will not prosecute police it's happening mm-hmm. so i i think we, we we have to make sure that we remember um that change is slow and there's always going to be resistance so when justice takes three steps forward resistance is coming to take those three steps back and maybe add one mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but we can't get we we can't get discouraged. You know, I'm I'm a student of Derrick Bell, and Derrick Bell said it's a beautiful struggle mm-hmm. to be in solidarity and to be in love and to be in conversation and to try to make each generation um, feel more inclusive and more loved in this country is the challenge. And um, you know, I try to write and I try to teach from that premise. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that the 
graduate student union, which has yet to receive recognition at Yale, will talk about and is that a lot of times these struggles to build something new to tear down the system as it exists, they, 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 their history is a history of failure. Um, it is so hard on the day to day it can feel as an organizer, as an activist that you are failing every step of the way before there's a win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know on your, your hip hop civics um, site, and I imagine in, in other spaces too, you, you think a lot about um, practices for sustaining this kind mm-hmm. of work. Um, mm-hmm. and I, wonder, I wonder if there's a resource or something that you do in, in the classroom or that you've seen others doing with their black and brown students um, to think about what does it mean to heal and to practice care for oneself or one's community in the midst of in the midst of struggle. Mm-hmm. So I'm on a podcast right now, so I'm being I'm trying to be quite serious, but I'm usually I, I love to joke around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. You know, I, I joke that, or not joke, but it's a reality. If if I, my dissertation wasn't on hip hop, it, it would have been on comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I truly think humor mm-hmm. is one of the best things we can do when it comes to fighting oppression. And I don't mean that as like humor can take down systematic, you know, structures, but humor can help us, it can break that tension, it can mm-hmm. help us have conversations. Uh, a comedian can take something that you see every single day that you just take for granted and, and blow it up in your face. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that I really enjoy um, is bringing humor and into the classroom because it allows for compassion. It allows for me to have really tough conversations with students to break the ice and it allows for them to see people's humanity. And then mm-hmm. once that, you know, that initial, you know, once they let it, their guard down, now we can have more difficult conversations. Um, so I think humor is, is one of the things we don't talk enough about. And it also is a place of joy and love um, that humor allows us to have. So one thing I love to do in the classroom is I'm, a, I'm a, I crack jokes nonstop. I crack mm-hmm. jokes on my students, about my students, about myself. Um, I think the classroom should be a place of joy. And I think one thing that we don't do as as professors, as educators, is we have to model what good classrooms look like. We have to model what humanity looks like. We have to model what compassion looks like. And so if you're a professor and a student hands in a late paper and you just go ballistic, you're not modeling what compassion looks like. And they're going to go into their classroom. And I actually am working with 22-year-olds and showing mm-hmm. no compassion. I don't need them working with seven-year-olds and showing no compassion. Mm-hmm. And so we have to model that in our classrooms. And I, I, I find often that it's not modeled and teachers and students have to see it done um, and have to feel it. You know, mm-hmm. I've had students say egregious things to me and then I just kill them with kindness. And those are the same students that come back a year from now, Dr. Love, they're following me on Facebook. Oh, I was, I mean, I was the worst person. But something happened in they, their lives and they needed someone. And now no professor was willing to work with you. And I was, 
and now oh you 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 follow me on facebook and they're they're telling me you know the work that they're doing in schools and these are students who i truly did not think this would be happening um so i think a lot of it is humor and compassion and modeling those things for students they have to see it done um particularly as a person of color i'm at the university of georgia so as a faculty member of color that's an added pressure that i have and so to understand that and to know that and try to not only know that I'm modeling, um, but I'm, I'm modeling for my, my race as well and my gender and my sexuality as a black queer woman at the University of Georgia. Um, so those are all the things that you know I try to take into account when I'm teaching. And sometimes it is exhausting, um, but I also understand that they're gonna be teaching black and brown children. And so, mm -hmm. There's a there's a balance between modeling and teaching and pushing that you juggle as an educator. Yeah, yeah, and well, I there you mentioned something there that I think is is really useful in your book too, where you say you can't have liberation without queerness. Yeah, and so often. Um, you know, with identity politics and um, the homophobic system, especially in the southern United States that I've experienced, um, you know, how would you unpack that statement for us? Because I think it's 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 really important. You can't have liberation without queerness. Yeah. So what I, what I mean by that is I'm not just concerned about queerness as sexuality or queerness as, as gender. Um, and I think queerness wraps all of that in, you know, somebody's gender, somebody's sexuality, uh, gender fluidity, uh, non-binary, all, all that stuff. But what I'm also concerned about is the idea that queerness allows us to push what society says is normal. <laughs> and if we're gonna talk about liberation, that I have to be deeply thinking about what society is pushing as normal to me and pushing back on that. And queerness is a lens, a beautiful lens that allows us to think deeply about masculinity, about femininity, about womanhood, and, and to think deeply about what these norms that we have established, mm -hmm. and how do we push back on these norms? So you can't have liberation and still stuck in ideas of conformity and what society says is normal. You're not gonna be able to even think about liberation because you can't think outside the box. And the best place I think, and one of the best spaces that prepares you to think outside the box, to critique what's normal, to challenge what's normal, and to do your own internalized work is mm -hmm. queerness. And so I, I wanna use queerness not just as a lens to have conversations about sexuality and have conversations about gender fluidity. I want to use queerness as a lens to also have conversations about pushing back against what's normal and folks being prideful about being queer. Because that, that's the sense that says, I know myself mm -hmm. in relation to what this world has said that, I, that I'm not. I know myself in a way in which that I see my beauty, even though this world doesn't see my beauty and I'm going to be my full self. Mm -hmm. And so for liberation, we also need queerness because queerness comes to the table with their full selves. And that doesn't mean you have it all together. That means, doesn't mean you're perfect. What it means is that I'm coming to bring my full self to the table. 
And if we're really going to be about a liberation, then we have to be about the liberation for me of trans folks, of queer folks, of non-binary folks. And so I wanted to make sure I put that in there because I think oftentimes when people say, oh, Black Lives Matter, but if you don't mean Black trans women lives matter, then we're, we're not talking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I wanted to be very explicit to talk about queerness as a space um, because I think oftentimes, particularly in conversations where we, we're talking about Black Lives Matter, you know, people don't, people say Black Lives Matter and can be homophobic, but the people who created Black Lives Matter is three Black queer women. Hmm. So trying to make sure that we're getting to those intersections um, was a very important part of the book for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the articles that um, I think is really just generative that you wrote is this um, piece for the Journal of Lesbian Studies, um, reimagining and expanding our definitions of black masculinity and mentoring Mm -hmm. and education through female masculinity. And the thing that struck me about this piece is, or many, one of the many things, is how you met this, this black queer woman educator. She worked at a custodian at a school who was mentoring black and brown boys. And that opened up for you this whole set of questions that then led to this article about black female masculinity and, mm-hmm. its, um, and its educational role. So, and that made me want to ask you, what, is there a space or a moment or an interaction recently where you have felt your own um, system of thought or your own um, sort of what you thought was possible for education opened up or challenged like in that moment um, of meeting this person? And if so, what is it? What What are you thinking about lately? (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, that piece was was a really um, heartfelt piece for me because I, I am a black queer woman who has a son. And, you know, I think there is this space of living in Atlanta, um, which is a, a fairly gay friendly city. I don't I don't. I don't take, I don't say that lightly. I don't think it's um, Mm -hmm. perfect, Uh, but I do think you have a good number of educators uh, who are, who are queer in Atlanta and and are out in their schools. And I think that's, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, Atlanta definitely still has a lot of work to do when it comes to uh, making this space as welcoming and as kind and as thoughtful as possible. But I do think there's something here. And so I wanted to talk about, um, what it means for black women, queer black women to mentor black boys. Um, and it's not to say that we don't need black men. Um, I love black men, but oh, less than 2% of black men are teachers. Mm-hmm. So who's going to, who's going to mentor, uh, you know, and what I saw in the schools was black queer women picking up that slack. Um, myself, like, I, you know, when my son played basketball, I was a basketball coach. Um, at the school, there's not many black males. So this black queer woman decided to start her own uh, Boy Scout troop. And so, you know, those are the moments as a researcher and as a thinker um, that you're like, oh, I want to write about this. I want to problematize this. I want to take this up. Um, and so that was a really, really fun piece for me because it, you know, it questioned everything. And, you know, I, I'm always 
trying to think about ways in which we can challenge masculinity. Um, because I think masculinity, along with racism, is one of the most hurtful things that we have in our society today. Mm-hmm. You know, the leading, the leading cause death of black women uh, and, and women in general are men. And so how do we have, you know, more robust conversations? So that's one of the things I'm really thinking deeply about. And one of the pieces I'm going to write in Ed Weekly, um, once the school year gets started off and I have more time, is to think about, you know, should we be teaching and talking about masculinities in schools much more? Should mm-hmm. we be helping young boys um, really tackle masculinity in ways in which that are more productive. You know, we talk about toxic masculinity, um, but we have to understand that that really comes with a price on many women's heads and and girls' heads. And, you know, I talk about this in the book a bit, you know, we're here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is one of the hubs of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to talk more deeply about masculinity and what that means um, you know, I was just really heartbroken today. I read a story on Facebook about a young black man um, who was dating a trans woman. And they were out and about walking and they started getting heckled and picked on and bullied because this young black man was dating a trans, a trans woman. And you can see in the video of him, you know, defending his love for a trans woman. And uh, he eventually committed suicide. Mm. And um, I just, you know, that that just really broke my heart today that he stood up and said, you know, yes, 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 I love or I have sex with trans women. And there's nothing wrong with that. And he even put it on Facebook, like, you know, she's a woman to me. I, I don't understand. And to be that bold and to have that bravery and to say that um, and to be ridiculed for it. And instead of taking her life like many men did, he took his. And, and you know, it's stories like that that just, just baffle you. Um, and you want to do something about it. And for me, I'm a writer, so, you know, to write something about it. But um, masculinity and the toxicness of this thing um, really is something I'm, I'm very troubled by and, and thinking a lot about lately. Yeah, so uh, what's what's your next project going to be? Is it is it going to be on this topic of toxic masculinity or something else? No, you know, my next project, I'm, I'm going to try my best. Um, and I'm going to give it a shot to try to take the book and turn it into a nonprofit. So um, mm-hmm. we're going to try to take the ideas of abolitionist teaching um, and turn it into a nonprofit organization uh, here in Atlanta. So we're going to have our rollout in the fall of 2020. Wow. Wow. That's a great thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to build it. Um, we're working on like the logo and the website and all that stuff now. We're just taking our time because um, I still got a full time job and I still got other stuff to do. But, you know, I talk about in the book fists and what fists meant for me. And, you know, I, I just want other kids to have that. I want to have classes on black masculinity. I want to have classes on queerness. I want to have yoga classes and wellness for teachers. And so we're going we're going to um, we're going to try and do it, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, all the best with that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your support. Thanks for the interview today. This was awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you for the time. Yeah. Do you have any final words? No. Well, 
Professor Love, your last um, your last words about this suicide makes me just think about what we were talking earlier with um, risk and how standing up to racist, sexist, heteropatriarchal capitalism has such a cost and requires such risk. And yeah. I think that that's that's a, maybe a note to leave on. Um, we are really grateful for your model and for your work. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm humbled by it. Well, thank you, Bettina. And again, this is uh, a conversation that we've had with Professor Bettina Love, the author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. Thank you, Bettina. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Nothing Never Happens Radical Pedagogy Podcast. The intro music is by Aviva and the Flying Penguins, written by Lance Eric Hagen. The outro music is by Paul Myrie. It's called Seven Steps. His music is available on ReverbNation.com. And I want to thank my audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris, along with China Wilson, producer. Thank you for listening.